0: This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. (laughs) Not have seen as many movies this year as I did in the pre pandemic world, but I have used some of that film time to read more books than in past years. This week we are going to cast an eye back over the year. With two brilliant and creative leaders from our local arts world Alex George of Skylock Bookshop and Barbie Banks of Ragtag Film Society, so that we can see what made their list of commendations and we can find out what we missed and need to catch up on. Let's start in the world of books. So Alex George, I find it hard to imagine that between you and Carrie and the rest of the Skylark staff that there is any book that was released in 2021 that one of you hasn't read or at the very least you have dipped your nose into it for a brief interlude, sort of like the literary equivalent of a day trip. And so I do not know of any better person to turn to and find out which books made your bibliophile hearts beat a little faster this year. And I'm wondering whether book years are like wine years, where you look back and say, ooh, in 1978, now that was truly a vintage year, or whether all book years are fantastic?
1: I think there are certainly, it's certainly the case that some years are better than others. Um, and this year was actually a very good year, particularly the fall. There were lots of amazing books that were published around about September, October time, to the point where we didn't even know <laughs> what to talk about because there were so many. Every, every week we had some really, really big books come out.
0: And do you think that's because they were all being written during the pandemic? Or were they, did they predate that time?
1: Well, knowing how publishing works, most of them had probably been finished before uh, the pandemic really hit. It just takes so long to get through the the process of actually getting them copy edited and uh, typeset and having the covers designed. It, it's usually at least a year between the finalisation of the manuscript and it actually appearing on the shelves. So, But it's also the case that The fall is when the really big books traditionally are published. And so we always expect to see lots of books like that in the fall. But this year was just a particularly rich crop. We had a new Amor Towles, a new Anthony Durr, a new Colson Whitehead. So it was just a particularly extraordinary year, really, from that point of view.
0: How many books would you say you consume per year, like both reading and listening to while you're out running?
1: Oh, my goodness. I have no idea. Uh, But it's an awful lot. I've never actually bothered to count up. Um, there's some sort of perverse part of me that doesn't keep a list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me why. It's probably very sort of amateur hour over here because I, I don't do that, but um, an awful lot. And certainly the, you know, you talked about listening. I mean, ha- having the ability to listen to audio books as well as massively increase the number of books that I can get through. And, um, but but I'm not, so there, there are some booksellers who will sort of get 50 pages into a book and if they're not enjoying it, they'll put it down and read something else because we have so many of these uh, books that come in before publication, sort of hoping that we're going to read them. But I, I don't do that. I tend to always finish a book if I begin it, which I think is probably because I write myself. And so I know the effort that's gone into <laughs> it. And so I feel that, well, if I've started, I should probably finish. So
0: I do abandon books. I give them 100 pages. And if they haven't grabbed me by 100 pages, then I figure it's time to move on. But I do persevere as long as I can.
1: And I, I think that's entirely reasonable. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so I do know that my book buying habit has gone up considerably since you opened Skylark, what is it, three years ago now? Three and change?
1: Yeah, three and three and a bit now, yeah.
0: But the one thing that I haven't achieved yet is a book spa appointment, which is an idea that I think is genius and I'm so dying to do it. So just explain the book spa for us.
1: So the book spa is... Um, Really just, it's a sort of Cadillac book buying uh, experience uh, is the idea. And you come in and ahead of your appointment, you fill a questionnaire talking about the sorts of books that you've liked and enjoyed in the past and what you're interested in, what sort of genres uh, you like and what you don't like. And then we sit down with the customer and we have a stack of books and we basically just talk to them for an hour or so and really get a sense of what they're looking for, and then we go away and find books for them. And so it's a highly curated, extremely personalised service that we do. Customers seem to love it. We love it too. It's wonderful for booksellers to have that opportunity to to spend that much time with an individual customer. If you do the spa, then you get a hundred bucks to spend and a coffee mug and a bit of chocolate and all these fun things. And uh, And it's great. And people often aren't able to buy all the books that we suggest and so they often keep a list and they'll come back later and say what was one of the ones that you suggested that I didn't get last time and so we have these wish lists going now for people who've done the spas in the past.
0: Last year when we talked we talked before Christmas and so we got to talk about the brilliant Icelandic concept of you of Lord wherein Icelanders gift a book to their nearest and dearest on Christmas <laughs> Eve. I've been practicing that, you can tell, can't you? You're a book of lord. Um I can
1: tell, yeah. That was <laughs> most impressive. Thank
0: you very much. So they gift a book to their their friends and family on Christmas Eve. So that their family can spend the evening, Christmas Eve evening, each in their own little book reading nook with a literary distraction. And like the book spa, this is a concept that I love. But but I'm gonna give you an idea now. Here's here's a little gift from me. I would prefer A Yanoir Book of Lord, whereby I can pass the booze free month of January with a small cart of books with which I can amuse myself until the wine bar opens again in February. So I'm just going to leave that out there and (laughs) await my carts. But I think the (laughs) Yanoir Book of Lord would be equally good for Columbia, Missouri. So, yeah, that's just a gift from me to you. I like it. I like it. So, what I want to talk about today, really, are your books of the year. Maybe we should call them the Skylarkies or the Skylark a prize except there is no prize.
1: Oh I like that yes yeah? yes okay. the Skylark is good yeah.
0: And then I'm going to be making a list here so that I know what to put in my Januar Book of Lord cart come <laughs> the new year. So we can do some standard categories like you know fiction and non-fiction but yeah. I, I know how creative you are and I feel sure that you have some interesting additional non-traditional categories that we can discuss too.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
0: so where should we start? Should we start at the top with fiction?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's start with sort of favourite novel. And, and I guess we should start all of this with the obvious disclaimer that all of these things, of course, uh, as every <laughs> prize, no matter how uh, illustrious, and this is probably maybe the most illustrious of all, it's always subjective. Uh, right. So what you're hearing are really just what what Carrie and I have loved this year. And my favourite novel of the year was a novel called Still Life, by Sarah Winman, who uh, who is English. And the book is set in Florence. Uh, it starts at the, uh, the end of World War II and goes through up until about the 1980s, I think. And it's just the most wonderful, escapist, delightful story of these eccentric Brits living abroad in Italy. I loved every page of it. It's so much fun. There's some sort of art history in there. There's an extremely charismatic parrot, um, <laughs> and it's just this wonderful, wonderful story that just um, just sweeps you away. You know, we, we, you and I have spoken in the past about the the Magus, the John mm. Fowles book, and how you know that's got this incredible. You know, you really feel like you are on a Greek island, and uh, this book was the same. sort of had the same sort of transporting element to it and I really felt that I was I was in Florence with these wonderful characters. I just just adored it. So, we sell out of those pretty much as soon as they come in because I just press them on everybody who walks <laughs> through the door. So, I really I really love that book.
0: I thought you might mention Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, which I think came out in the early fall, which I absolutely loved. But I think the book that stayed with me the most this year, that I couldn't get out of my head, was Ruth Gillikin's *The Butcher's Blessing*. Yes, set in Ireland, a tale of of, of history and and uh, tradition and murder most foul, and love. That was very transportative for me too. And in fact, it was so beautifully written that I thought, "Is this actually a true story?" And I had to go and look it up and and determine whether or not it was a true story, which I won't give that away so people can read it. But it was just so
1: compelling. Yeah, it was a wonderful book. We both read that and loved it. And we we sold a lot of them. I mean, I tended to begin by going, this is the oddest book that you're going to read this year. But just trust me, it's, <laughs> as you said, compelling is the right word. It's so peculiar, but it's, it's so unlike anything else. And as booksellers, that's kind of what we're always looking for and hoping for is something so different. And that book really really was different and it had a little bit of everything and uh, it was it was just wonderful yeah we we love that book
0: okay so there we go we have still life from alex and carrie and the butcher's blessing from me i only read really fiction so i'm going to have nothing to offer in the other categories but anyway there you go that's
1: <laughs> that's my bit for the
0: year so where where shall we go from fiction
1: well how about non-fiction perfect and there are there are lots of different categories that you could choose here but just the general non-fiction book that i enjoyed the most this year was an incredible book by Clint Smith, who's, who was originally known really as a poet. And he wrote a book called How the Word is Passed," which is, um, how would you even describe it? It's not really a memoir. He travels around the United States and goes to eight or nine different places, which are sort of markers of slavery. And um, it's so it's a sort of, it's a travelogue, I suppose you might say, but also a historical reflection. And because he is a poet, he writes gorgeous, gorgeous prose. It's highly personal, but he also just tells the story of the things that happened in these various places. And so he went to Monticello, for example, and takes the tour. And then he goes to a different plantation that actually addresses the reality of the situation and and doesn't sort of gloss over the fact of the slavery that happened there and the atrocities that happened. And it's the most extraordinary book. Uh, Again, I've been pressing it on everybody, because it's such an important story that really needs to be told. And and he he does it in such a wonderful way. So that was certainly my uh, my nonfiction book of the year.
0: Okay, so that's Clint Smith, How the Word is Passed on the non-fiction Skylarky recommendation. What about uh, crime and thriller? I love crime and thriller books.
1: So my favourite of the year is actually a, it's a sequel. So Anthony Horowitz is this wonderful English crime writer and he's he's actually written a couple of books uh Sherlock Holmes books that he got he got permission from the Conan Doyle estate to do it so he's a sort of authorized uh writer of new Sherlock Holmes mysteries but he also writes these very fun books um three of which um in, involve him and he actually appears in the book along with somebody else and they're tremendous fun uh And then in addition to that, he's written a couple of other books, one of which is called Magpie Murders. And the new book uh, was called The Moonflower Murders. And they are very, very smart. There's a book within a book, um, if that makes sense. So he's created an author who writes these books. And then the the book inside the book contains the clues to the murder mystery outside the book. I'm not sure I could have made that any more confusing if I had tried, (laughs) but... You're going to have to stick with him. Just believe me that it, it, it works. It's very, very fun. And I always say I'm the best possible audience for books like this because I miss every single clue, no matter how blatantly it's dangled in front of my face. And so I, I swan along to the end quite happily. And then I'm always incredibly surprised because I've, <laughs> I've missed it all and surprised and delighted uh, by the, the final reveal. But He's very smart. They're very clever books. They're they're very knowing and sort of self-referential um but really really good fun and if you're if you enjoy murder mysteries then you will uh, certainly enjoy that.
0: Well, in fact, I am reading The Magpie Murders right now. Oh, really? Fantastic. Okay, so let's let's now have one of uh one of your strange awards. Um you have some good suggestions. Give me the most obscure title.
1: Okay, so the the most obscure title um we're very excited about this 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 book. It's called "Handbook of Research on Health and Environmental Benefits of Camel Products," <laughs> um, and it's about drinking camel milk, uh, which has, so it's really everything you need to know about the health benefits or the lack of health benefits of drinking camel milk. And the book retails, if anyone is interested, for $356.25. <laughs> small
0: market in Colombia, I'm thinking.
1: Yeah, well, possibly a small market, but we're excited about this. We think we think it's going to do really well for us. So, um...
0: <laughs> How many copies do you have right now?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't even tell you how many. I mean, the, the back room is just stacked to the gills. <laughs> it's a very, very odd book.
0: That's a good one that definitely wins most of your title. What else have you got in the strange uh, the only at Skylarky awards category?
1: well so um uh, another category that we we thought was a good one was um the the book most likely to make you thankful that you're not in your twenties again oh yeah uh, which is a beautiful world Where are you by Sally Rooney. Now, Sally Rooney is a particularly in England actually is a real phenomenon and um, people are somewhat obsessed with her and this is her third novel and I think by far and away her best book as she grows older so her characters grow older too uh, and this is a book of people in Ireland um it's basically the story of two couples. it's incredibly sharply observed very very smart but what's interesting about the book is that And you notice this very quickly as you read it. it's, It's beautifully written, but there's a complete lack of interiority when you watch everybody interact with each other. It's almost like a stage play because there is no he thought or she thought or anything. It's just how they act towards each other. It's like watching a play. And then in between those chapters, there are these emails that we get. And that's where all of the internal thought processes come out. It's a really interesting idea. It works very well, I think. And it's, yeah, it's it's a great book. Uh, yeah, it's very entertaining and um, very thought-provoking too. There's, there's some gems on every page. But it did make me think, gosh, I, I'm really glad <laughs> I'm not <laughs> in my 20s anymore because <laughs> it's really confusing. And it's far more confusing now than it was when I was in my 20s. Uh, but it's, it's a terrific book. And one of the other categories that we... Uh, we came up with was best poetry book about a sport you know nothing about now uh th- there are so many sports i know nothing about <laughs> even though i've been here for 18 years now i'm still woefully ignorant about just about every american sport but that said there's a wonderful book called beholding uh that's two words be holding by ross gay who is a wonderful wonderful poet and he wrote a book about Julius Irving, who I'm sure, Diana, you are very familiar with. Football player? Uh, not quite. Not <laughs> quite. Uh, but you, I'm sure you remember game four of the 1980 NBA finals between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah,
0: I, I was 14 years old. I was glued to it.
1: Of course, you are. yeah. So, you'll remember <laughs> the baseline scoop that Julius Irving did, right? Yes, yeah, we'll just push yeah. on anyway. Gosh. So, I, I had nothing, I had no idea what this was, but uh, I have YouTube is a wonderful thing, and I went and looked at it, and it's the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. I mean, Julius Irving does this move that defies gravity in about 17 different ways <laughs> before scooping the ball into the net. No, that's not right. Well, he makes a basket. Oh, listen to me. I sound like my mother. Um, anyway, he he, he's, he scores basketball, whatever you call a basketball thing. But it's extraordinary. And Ross Gay has taken this moment and written a book-length poem about it. And he begins by talking about himself watching this this moment of magic. And then it goes on and uh, in typical Ross Gay fashion, talks about many, many other things as well. He, he sort of links the history of the game with the history of this country as a whole. And it's about joy and obsession and history and all of us. And it's just, just magical. I'm generally not one for book-length poems. I like my Uh, my verse in slightly more digestible chunks but this one made complete sense to me it was why I sat down and read it in one sitting it was one of the most wonderful experiences I've had for a long time reading a poem as will have been clear from what I was the nonsense I was spouting before I know absolutely nothing about basketball (laughs) but that doesn't matter it didn't matter it was still just just wonderful so I really, really adored that book.
0: When you say book-length poem, are we talking 300 pages or is it a short book, more like a poetry anthology size book?
1: Well, I I don't have it in front of me. It's probably about 120 pages or so. Okay. So you can read it in a couple of hours.
0: Okay. well, I'm going to go and Google the Julius Irving moment now so that I have some knowledge of what we've just been (laughs) talking about. So so let's go back to a main category. I know this is one that is close to your heart, which is cooking. I know you love cookery books and you love cooking. So what has been your favourite cookery book of the year?
1: So there are so many different ways that you, you know, I mean, favorite, of course, is always subjective. But I think when it comes to cooking in particular, uh, there, there are different metrics by which you which you can use to establish it. And I think the most meaningful one is probably the book that I have cooked out of the most uh, this year. And that is Phalastin, which is by Yotam Ottolenghi. It's just an incredible book. Like all of his books, it's sort of mainly um, Palestinian and Middle Eastern food. But everything that I have cooked out of that book is absolutely extraordinary. And um, we just we love it. Uh, And it's not too complicated either. And there's a lot of actually really what what I remember most about it, in fact, is, is all of the fish that we've cooked out of it. Which has all been excellent. So yes, Fallaston by Otto Langi is absolutely my my cookbook of the year.
0: Well, moving right along, what about children's books? What have you got for us in the world of children's literature?
1: So there's actually a tie for the best kids book in the shop. One of which uh, is Kate DiCamillo, Camillo, who of course is a, a long-standing favourite and bestseller. Uh, And she has a new book out called The Beatrice Prophecy, which is a beautiful book. It's got wonderful illustrations all the way through by Sophie Blackall. And it's about a young girl who is discovered by nuns. And she has with her when when she's found a a rather ill-natured goat and she goes on adventures and it's a kind of it's a fairy tale it's a medieval epic there is some darkness to it but there's also at the end there's a lot of love and hope and it's written it's in this gorgeous gorgeous prose and it's something that and this is very important with, for a lot of people it's something that the whole family can read together and you know Kate de Camillo is is a real genius um, I think and so it's something that will keep the Keep the adults engaged, but also completely enthral the kids. So the Beatrice prophecy is doing very well, and then a book that's come out fairly recently, which is the other sort of winner in this in this category, is a, a picture book, and it's called Born on the Water. And you've probably read about the 1619 project, which Nicole Hannah Jones did, and this is a lyrical picture book about people tracing their families back and the african-american histories that are so inextricably linked with america's own history it is a beautiful beautiful book to look at the verse is gorgeous and so both of both of those books are just just wonderful
0: okay so let's go back to a couple uh, before we close a couple more of the the weird and funky categories you have identified for us what else have we got in this strange categories
1: So there's a category that I came up with called the books likely to make you furious. And there are an awful lot of them this year. (laughs) There are an awful lot of them. I mean, I read a lot of political books and most of them made me crazy this year. But there are two in particular, so there's kind of a tie. One of which um, is by Tony Messenger, who many people will know. He used to edit, be an editor and a writer at the Tribune. He's now lives and works at the he lives in St. Louis and works at the Post Dispatch and won a Pulitzer fairly recently. And his new book is called "Profit and Punishment: How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice." Tony was actually in the shop a couple of weeks ago to talk about the book. It's just come out. And it's basically about how people are made to pay for their time in prison. And then they rack up debts that that they are unable to pay because they've been in prison. And then they get thrown back into prison as a result of all of that. And I was I was standing behind the till and had anyone turned everyone was like watching Tony because he's such a compelling speaker. But had anybody turned around, they would have seen steam coming out of my ears because it Mm. made me it's so insane It's absolutely bonkers and made me so angry. So it's an incredibly important book. And it's just how people who are already impoverished, the the so-called justice system makes things much, much worse, throws them back into prison and just... Does it's almost as if they're doing everything possible to make life as difficult as possible for these people, right. and it just makes me so angry. But I, I do think though that anger is a good place from which we can uh, we can act so maybe maybe it's not entirely a bad thing. And then the other book of the many books that I read this year about the political situation in Washington, which really particularly sort of um, got me going, was a book by two Washington Post journalists, Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker, and it's called I Alone Can Fix It. And this is about the last year of the Trump presidency. And it goes into an enormous amount of detail that I was unaware of about the things that went on in the White House, particularly about COVID and the steps that were taken or perhaps more importantly, not taken. And it's just jaw dropping, however bad you thought it was. It was actually way worse. So both of those books, um, you know, we need to keep our eyes open, unfortunately, some of the time. And uh, they were both um, very, very good books.
0: Yeah, I, I can't read books like that back to back. I have to have a long space of time between them. Otherwise, it's just too depressing.
1: No, I understand
0: you got to have a happy book. So let's end on let's end on a happy book. Um, let's see. Do you have a book that made you as soon as you read the last page, you just went back and read the first page again, because it, it was a world that you didn't want to leave?
1: Absolutely. And what, <laughs> so I listened to it. And then I went into the shop and bought a copy of it, gave it to my wife, made her read it and now I'm reading it again. It's called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Uh, Now, Oliver Berkman used to write a column for The Guardian in the UK about productivity, and he would test out apps and uh, write about time management and all of these things. And he did that for years and years and years, and then he wrote a book. Um, And 4,000 Weeks, the title comes from, that's roughly how much we all get on average lifespan. And the result of all of these years of writing about productivity is that he basically says, I really wouldn't bother trying if I were you. (laughs) Um, And apologies for sounding flippant, but it's actually a wonderful book. It's beautifully written and it's actually deeply philosophical. And he talks about kind of a more pragmatic approach and this idea, you know, there are so many books out there that will tell you how to get to the bottom of your inbox or how to get everything off your to-do list or this or that. And Oliver Berkman just goes... Eh, Well, sure, you can try. But uh, you know what? If you do, you're just going to get more stuff that goes into the inbox. So he just there are other suggestions and different ways about thinking about living your life that were just eye opening to me. And I'm somebody who spends quite a lot of time because I'm juggling so many different jobs trying to work out how I can carve out a little bit of time for something else. And again, this is a book that I have been pushing into people's hands and telling them to go away and read it because it'll really change their lives. And um, uh, yeah, so I very much wanted to get back into it again as soon as I had finished. It's it's a really, really life, uh, literally a life changing book, I think.
0: OK, well, there is a lot that you have given us today that I would like to have in my Janvar Book of Lord cart. Um, in January. So I have a lot to think about. But Alex, George, I love talking to you about books. There is, I I don't think I could find a book that you didn't have an opinion on or had read or something. And, And it's just so lovely having you and Carrie and the Skylark staff here in Columbia, because I can just walk in the door and be in need of an escape. And I know that I will leave with either a giant tome if that's what I've asked for, as in The Eighth Life, which is, I think, over oh, a thousand pages.
1: that's huge. That I
0: absolutely loved. Um, or even just a relatively small book, like The Butcher's Blessing by Ruth Gilligan, and I will be transported. But it's because of you, you have put me on the train to Aww. wherever it is that I want to go. So thank you so much. It's been a joy, as always, having you on the show, Alex.
1: Thanks, Diana.
0: Betwixt Books and our chat with Ragtag Film Society's Barbie Banks about movies, I'm going to give you a final wee nudge of the year to visit the donation page on the KOPN website. KOPN has been putting the communing in community for almost half a century. We give airtime to voices from all corners of the community. And sometimes when you're a small organisation that has been around for three plus generations, it's easy to get lost in the fundraising end of year noise. But we exist today because of 50 years of your support, and with a move to a new home that we own coming up in 2022, we are planning to be here for the next five decades too. You can donate online at kopn.org forward slash donate or via Como Gives. And now, let's head into the world of film with Bobby Banks. I have a confession to make Barbie. Every year, (laughs) I chastise myself for not getting out to see more movies at Tech. Even in non-pandemic years, I do a poor job. And I think to myself, just make a regular date with yourself to go to whatever (laughs) is showing on, I don't know, like Friday at three. Just go. And then, you know, I fail to achieve escape velocity. And that escape velocity has gotten ever so sticky over the last 18 months. So now, in order to catch up with the backlog of films I really, really want to see, I do need my own three-day film festival. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's such a long list. It's abysmally long. And all I can do is apologise, Barbie, and aim to do better in 2022 because I love coming to Ragtag. I love watching trailers, um, which everybody else hates, but I love trailers. And I love all the clever Ragtag promo videos you put together the shared movie watching experience and bumping into pals. It's all great stuff. And it's one of those things you think, I think, why is there not more of this in my life? Because there's no one stopping me, except me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I work there and I feel the same way. We blackout Friday mornings to watch a film together. And there's still so many Fridays where I'm like, Oh, I'm gonna do this at work instead. And I'm like, No, this is my work. (laughs) I should sit here and watch this movie. And they're always even the ones we watched one last week that I wasn't a huge fan of. But I'm so glad I watched it because I got to experience it with my coworkers and talk about it afterwards. And there's just something really special about that.
0: There is it's just that shared experience that shared conversation when people reference things in passing conversation and you think I don't know I don't get what that references and it's because you know you haven't seen the movie or watched the TV show or whatever
2: it Right is. exactly
0: <laughs> But before we get underway with the year in review, I want to have a little moment of celebration with you for the imminent arrival from London of your new artistic director, yes. Chloe Trainer.
2: We're so excited. She is officially a extraordinary alien, is what the government calls her now, <laughs> which we're like, we have to get buttons or t-shirts made with that because what a weird title. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I was that, or I was just an alien.
0: I don't know if I was extraordinary, I'm just an alien.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it feels like forever we've been waiting for her to get here. We weren't even sure if she would be here by the fest in March, and things just progressed really fast, and she'll be arriving on New Year's Eve in the morning, and the first thing she wants to do is go to Target, so we're going to take her there.
0: (laughs) She probably thinks it's pronounced tar or something. Probably. (laughs) And then uh, IHOP. She likes going to IHOP, right? Oh,
2: excellent. Yes. I mean, that's what's so funny is everything we are just so used to. She's very excited to try out. And then all of us are making plans to go back over to England when she visits to to experience her world that she's leaving behind for us, which is scary and exciting for us. Right. So what have you got planned for her first few weeks? Or is she just going to be like nose to the grindstone getting on with her job? Yes. You know, the programming team, which Um, the majority of them are brand new this year. I mean, this is crunch time for them for the fest. So honestly, she probably won't have a lot of time to like socialize and pick an apartment. We have a temporary housing space for her and and then she'll find an apartment. And so I feel like she won't really be experiencing Columbia until April when the fest is over and she can take off her festival blinders and move around. So we're just very excited. How will
0: she split her influence between true-false and the regular year-round rec tech schedule?
2: You know, this is a new position for us too. I mean, we've had our founders, Paul and David, who acted as artistic directors, but they were also everything else for the org. And so this is the first time we're having an artistic director that just focuses on that. And right now, I would say it's probably 70% fest and 30% cinema. We have an amazing cinema programmer, Ted, who just really knows what our community wants. And so, He's going to be teaching her about that and then she'll be bringing in some influence and it's going to be really cool. And uh, we have things planned where she'll get to present a couple films at the cinema for people to get to know her a little bit. And then, after she's done with 2022 Fest, she'll start right in on 2023. Right. It's
0: very exciting to have a new in town, but I'm going to have to, you know, share the Brit love. I might, I might get a bit jealous because she's going to be everybody's new darling.
2: <laughs> you and Alex, George, getting a little jealous there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's really exciting for our organization. I, we, Did a bunch of interviews and she just blew us away with her presentation of what she kind of expects for the future of Ragtag Film Society. And even though she was across the pond, it was she gets it. She knows what we want to do with our community and how the influence we want to have internationally. So we can't wait. It's going to be wonderful. So how does that work with Ted? I mean, Ted Rogers
0: is the chief programmer for Ragtag. He does an awesome job. He, like you say, he knows what the community wants. How does Chloe influence that role?
2: yeah and it's a fine balance because there's a lot of art house cinemas who hire a booker who just books the same films that all art houses are showing, and we could have went with that model honestly, it's probably cheaper <laughs> to do that, but instead we're investing in Ted to like not just program what everybody else is programming but to really know what our community wants and what might expand their mind. And Chloe will be able to assist with that. So bringing in a, a perspective, she you know identifies as a woman, so that will be different. And they're about the same age, which that will be a little different because we've always kind of had a wider variety of age of people programming for us. And I think it'll be a good balance. And Ted is He's very excited to be able to work with Chloe because he knows where his blind spots are as a, a white dude that <laughs> grew up in America. And um, and he's ready to like le- learn from her and take those things in. I don't think we're going to see as much of her influence at the cinema as we will at the fest, though. I still think it's going to feel a lot like Ted at the cinema, which is good. How
0: much uh, at this point, three, two or two months really out from the fest, how much is already... Booked and programmed. I mean, usually a lot of what you have at the fest is influenced by um, Sundance. Sundance. So, how much is there still to do at this point? How much do you know
2: percentage wise? I would say we have about 70% unplanned. <laughs> so, it's still 30%. Um, the art installations, that's kind of the first thing that we solidify and program. And so, we have those. They're announced in late January and then music is the next that we get done, and then films. It's very last minute because we're kind of first in the circuit of festivals. And so there's films that are just being completed that we'll get, or films that don't have a distributor and they come out of Sundance and they get a distributor. So that puts everything on hold until after Sundance. And True False is very influential, but we're still young in what we've done. And so there's still people who are holding out for Sundance or South By. Now that Sundance, has announced their films we'll start locking things rather quickly because people know that they didn't get into Sundance or if they're holding out for South by Southwest that's typically where our secret screenings come into play where we'll premiere it as a secret screening and its actual premiere is at South by um there's also the Tribeca Film Festival that used to be in early April, and now that has moved to the summer. So that one is not as impactful for us anymore. I think in a good way, we're going to see people choosing to premiere at True False because Tribeca is further on in the year.
0: Right. And I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of this too, I look at the films at sundowns and then I look at the True False schedule and I think oh, why didn't they bring this one here? This would have been great. But I mean, it's not often up to you because if a distributor comes in, then it's taken off the table.
2: Yeah. You know, Sundance is a festival about the movie business. It's not necessarily a festival about the community of Park City. And so it's all about buying films, you know, they track every day, what films were bought for what amount, and you don't see that at True Falls. So it's just a very different type of festival. But yeah, if something gets bought out of Sundance, and it goes to Netflix, and they're going to premiere it either before our festival or right after, it might not be something that we take or are able to take for our festival, you know, so it just kind of all depends. And I think we have this whole new programming team. So I think we're going to see some things that we might have not seen at the festival in the past, because it's a more diverse team that's programming. Um, It is a little bit younger, and it's just going to be really new. But it's still going to be the same curious films that we've always had.
0: I remember when we were talking last year, when everything in the world was shut down, including the film making industry, you had said, well, there'll be a lag before we really notice it. Because the films that we're going to see this year, next year, probably were filmed in 2019 or they could be edited in 2020. It's going to be 2022 when we really see a paucity or a sparseness in the film industry. Has the film industry caught up over the last year or is 2022 going to be a slower year for films?
2: It's definitely going to be a slower year. If you've looked at Sundance's films, there's some retrospectives and they typically don't do retrospectives. And we think that's why. And just like us, they're tracking films for years until they're ready to be exhibited. And I think there's a few less, and we saw that with our uh, submissions. We had to really, really pull from a variety of places to get enough submissions, and there's a few that are still work in progress because they couldn't finish things, and we're not opposed to showing that. It's just a different it's a different type of screening than a fully polished film. So I'm hoping 2023 will be back to normal with that, but I still think there's... Um, People being very cautious and and with, you know, there was the incident of the shooting that happened um, on a film. I think there's a lot of evaluating what film sets are like. And so I think that might also affect 2023, which is in a way that is a little less than a normal year.
0: Right. Well, let's take a look back over the past year of movies and did you have a chance to mine the voluminous brain of programmer Ted Rogers and other
2: <laughs> other staff? You know, I would say if you're thinking of opposite taste it's me and Ted (laughs) I love musicals he hates musicals films that are like you know nostalgic to me and and bring me so much joy he's like oh the worst movie ever made and so um we did talk a little bit and and I think there's some areas where we overlap but the next ones we're going to talk about really are my opinion but I'll tell you where Ted also agrees with me
0: (laughs) that'll be interesting I can see whether I side with you or or with Ted well um, should we should we do it kind of like the Oscars and look at different categories for the, yeah. the RegTech 2021 commendations. And then we can intersperse that with some fun, non-traditional categories that we talked about. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> well, I feel like we should start with best documentary or, or maybe not best, you know, because this is subjective, recommended right, documentaries. Right. Uh, what has been your favorite and, and maybe what has been Ted's favorite this year?
2: Yeah, we both kind of agree that Procession by Robert Green. I know we're probably a little biased because Robert Green is from Columbia, but we both think it's It's a film that is about filmmaking and about a social issue and it's entertaining and it's heartfelt and it's one that we think it's on Netflix. We were able to show it at the Missouri Theater, but it's a can't miss film and it does something that we haven't seen a lot of documentaries do with um, bringing subjects into the filmmaking process to help them heal. So. It's it's one that we both just think is absolutely necessary for people to watch. Tell us a little bit about the film for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, so it follows um, five different survivors of abuse by Catholic priests, and they are adult grown men in their 40s to 60s. And Robert Greene and a couple producers help them make films about their... Um, confronting their abuse or maybe rethinking what could have happened to change the actions of the priest. You know, they basically make art to heal from this trauma. And there's a wide variety of men who are in different aspects of healing with the, with this trauma. And it's incredible and it will, it sounds really sad, but actually it's really heartfelt and actually uplifting And when we showed it at the Missouri Theater, there was a whole bunch of Catholic priests there, which felt good to see them wanting to have this discussion. And we've heard good feedback from Missouri Catholic churches, nothing from, you know, the higher ups in the Vatican or anything, but films have been made about this subject, but this one is really from the survivors of it. And it's, it's incredible.
0: It is. I was there for the screening at the Missouri theater. I didn't know there were some Missouri priests there too. So that's very interesting, but it was a very heartfelt film. So it was sad and hard to watch at times when you thought about what these men had been through and how has something that happened when they were six years old, they were still dealing with 50 years later in terms of their ability to have functional relationships with people. But the process they went through and being able to watch that process and the drama therapist that was involved was so interesting. So yes, as a film about the filmmaking process and healing, there was a lot of uplifting, heartwarming moments. And then when you had the most of the men in the film were on the stage at the end for a Q&A. And that was just, as always, so lovely to be able to meet the subjects that are in the film and, and hear them talk about it. And they were also positive about the experience.
2: Yeah we think it's important. We like to look at the, when we're picking film for true false, the relationship between the director and the subjects. And there's a lot of discussion in our programming room about ethics and were the subjects treated right. And this just felt like Robert Greene did a great job of that. And it, it will be something that people look to to understand how subjects should be treated on a film set.
0: I hope it makes it to an Oscar list for best documentary.
2: I think it will. I think Netflix has already talked about doing a big push It's on a few, you know, lists that are predicting what might happen. So fingers crossed for him.
0: So that is one that you and Ted agree on, Best Documentary. Yes. Okay.
2: (laughs) How about Best Drama? This one, I think Pig. It was a Nick Cage film by... Michael Cernoski, it was his first feature film. You know, Friday morning, we watched these films with our staff and I thought, oh, I'm going to hate this movie. And I left there being like, everybody should see this. It was so great. The previews made it seem like it was going to be really gory and it was about revenge. And it it was about revenge, but not in the way you think it's going to be. And... Ted and I both agree that it's a great film but he thinks that there's some better dramas that were out there this year like Belfast was his his choice.
0: Belfast is one of the films that I'd like to have in my own private film festival because I missed
2: it and I so so desperately wanted to see it and then it just was gone. Yes I mean it came fast that's the problem with only having two screens at Ragtag is there's so many films coming out especially this time of year that we have to like turn them over pretty fast and it's unfortunate but it's worth watching at home on your tv it's so well done and we sometimes bring back if it gets nominated for an oscar which i'm sure it will for best picture we sometimes will bring things back like that we did it with a couple films like nomadland and stuff to give people another chance to see them
0: right what about who would you give your commendation for best actor to
2: Well, this film did not come to ragtag because it was straight to Netflix. But uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in Power of the Dog by Jane Campion, it's, um, man, I, I watched it. It premiered at Telluride on Labor Day, and and I could not stop thinking about his performance. And I know I know he's a great actor, but there's just something about this performance. It's he's so angry and manipulative, and then there's this really sweet scene with him and another character, and then he's angry and manipulative again. And it's just a wide variety of emotions. And he deserves an Oscar for this performance for sure.
0: I have never even heard of that film. Oh, my gosh. Give me a summary
2: of what it's about. It is about two brothers at the turn of the 19th century, and they are ranchers. And one of the brothers meets a a woman and they get married and she has a son. And the Benedict Cumberbatch character is teaching the son how to be a rancher. And there's it's hard to explain. There's just like a history that you're not really sure about what's happening and how Benedict Cumberbatch's character learned to be a rancher and all this crazy stuff happens and it's wonderful. It's well done. It shows the state of Montana. Um, I've never been there, but it makes me want to go there and see it because it's so beautiful. Okay, good one. Best actor. What about best actress? I think Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye, she just did a great job. I'm I'm a fan of Tammy Faye anyway. I think she's such a character, but Jessica Chastain did a great job of showing her humor and really how compassionate of a person Tammy Faye was. And I think the movie showed that Tammy Faye maybe isn't as uh, much of a grifter as her husband was, (laughs) Um, and Jessica just did a really good job with that, so think she deserves an award so moving on to some
0: of the non let's do a couple of non-traditional categories yeah movie
2: wardrobe that you wish was your own oh definitely Cruella de Vil from Cruella (laughs) (laughs) um I don't know if you saw if you saw that or the last night in Soho which is really about London in the 60s both of them are and Cruella just blew me away with the type of fashion they all had and a dress made out of beehive you know it was awesome i think that movie was really well done and if you get a chance to watch it, it's worth it.
0: Wasn't Cruella one of their most popular Halloween outfits yeah. this year?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So and Emma Stone, I think she's great in almost everything she does. And this was really a campy version that she could do. So.
0: so in this year when lots of us have been forced to watch movies at home because we're still living in a pandemic, what what would you have as a movie that really, really should be seen on a big screen? Don't watch it at home. Wait until you can get it to see it in a movie house.
2: Yes, that has to be The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. It's a, did you see it at Ragtag? Oh, don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if you don't really care for Wes Anderson, you would hate it. I love Wes Anderson. It's like Wes Anderson. It was almost, I keep saying like, was he joking with us to just show how Wes Anderson he could be? But it was the sound mixing was amazing. So, you know, very few people have surround sound in their home in the way that movie theaters do. And it was just the coloring was amazing. There was a black and white. It's like vignettes, and there's a black and white one. There was an animated one. And it was just a really cinematic experience that Deserves to be seen on a giant screen. The biggest one you can find is what Variety said about it.
0: There is not a Wes Anderson film that I haven't completely, completely loved.
2: Yeah, this one, it didn't get as great of reviews as some of his other stuff. But I loved it. I thought it was really creative. And if you see the list of famous actors in it, it's a mile long. And some of them are literally in it for half a second. <laughs> and so I think people just want to work with him. And they'll be like, I don't care if I it's half my face on screen. I'll do it.
0: What about best soundtrack? Have you got a movie way you really love the soundtrack for it?
2: I think West Side Story, which wasn't at Ragtag, but it's really well done. And there's some new songs, or new mixing of songs, I should say. But I don't know, it feels like a, a gimme for that one. So the other one I would say is Annette, which was a musical that Amazon put out with Adam Driver. And the Sparks Brothers did the soundtrack. And I think it will probably win Best Original Song. They had several new songs in it. And the movie... I hated it when I watched it, but I didn't stop thinking about it for weeks. (laughs) And the soundtrack was just incredible.
0: Well, on that subject, I would have to vote best film about a band or best documentary. But the Sparks Brothers, which I didn't see a ragtag, but I just tracked it down this past week. So I have some recency bias. I remember Sparks in 1979, and I loved them in 1979. And I had no idea that this band, who were A, American, I always thought they were English, as apparently lots of people did. (laughs) Yes. Um, And nobody, I mean, i asked Tom. Tom, who has followed music his whole life, my husband, he said... How Do I Not Know This Band? And he thought that it was a Spinal Tap spoof film because he's like, <laughs> this band is so huge. How do I not know who they are? That is such a good film. And what is amazing so is that they are still making music. They've never, ever stopped making music. They've never had any real... Notice from the industry, or they've been behind the scenes, they've influenced 50 years of performers. And they're still a name that a lot of people have no idea who they are.
2: Yeah, when it came, I remember having to Google who they were. And hit records was they, well, we just got a bunch of albums in and I felt the same way. Like I was like, I thought this was kind of a joke band, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I watched it, I was like, Oh, this is incredible. And yeah, how did I not you know, I know a lot of music from that era and I just didn't know it at all. And it was incredible to watch that. And yeah, it's definitely worth it. And I, I do think they'll get nominated for an Oscar, which I hope helps them get some recognition that they deserve.
0: Yeah. What about, uh, (laughs) I had this category movie most likely to make you pee your pants from laughing.
2: I think technically this one was in 2020, but it's, is, um, Like officially on IMDb 2021, but Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Did you see it with Kristen Wiig? No, I've never even heard of this one either. Oh, my God. I think it's a film that if it had come, it went straight to video on demand because of the pandemic. But if it was in theaters, it would be a big flop. And then five years later, it would be a cult classic. But it's Kristen Wiig (laughs) and the writers of Bridesmaids made it. And it's these two women who decide to go to Florida because they believe it's going to change their life. And it's... Really weird and really funny, and it's uh, Kristen Wiig at her best because she gets to play one of the main characters plus the villain, and it has a Austin Powers feel to it, but a a better version of it.
0: So um, I consulted with one of your colleagues, who shall remain nameless, but will be pretty obvious to you who it is. And I said, "What kind of categories, you know, fun categories should we have?" And so she said, "Um, "Ask." Barbie, a uh, film that made me talk out loud the most. What?
2: <laughs> apparently, you're, apparently
0: you're a talker in movies. I
2: am. I talk all the time in movies. And that's why it's better for me to watch it with my co-workers. <laughs> they don't get <laughs> mad at me. So, oh, that's a funny one. I talked a lot during the movie Swan Song, which I thought was one of the best acted films this year. But the writing was so bad, and it could have been magnificent. And it makes me sad that like, a new writer can't take that story and redo it, you know, like when I see a movie that has something off about it, that's what I get disappointed in is that it could have been so good and it wasn't so (laughs) but I did talk a lot during that one and and (laughs) Annette because like I said I hated it so much but then can't stop thinking about it and I recommend it to so many people even though I'm like you're not gonna like it but you should see it
0: (laughs) (laughs) the other category I have to ask you about is in which film did you rant about the patriarchy the most Oh, interesting. I'm guessing this person has a film in mind because obviously you were ranting about the Patriarch after but she didn't tell me which one it was. Most of them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, having run the film Festival Citizen Jane for so long, it was like, there's so many films now that I'm like, this, this could have been better if a woman had directed it and this thing would have changed. But I think the movie Zola made me say, screw the patriarchy the most, even though it was done so well. And it was made by a woman and based on a woman's tweets, which I think is so creative and unlike anything we've ever seen. And they're people of color who wrote it and wrote the tweets, and I hope they win a ton of awards for it because it was incredible. And I always joke that I wasn't born a lesbian, but I was made one by the horrible interactions I've had with men, and (laughs) (laughs) it, it solidified that for me, so... (laughs)
0: Well, before we close, what film are you most looking forward to? I guess you get some inside tracks that maybe that we don't get the things that are coming out next year. Is there anything that's really high on your list of do not miss this? So I can I can note it now and make sure (laughs) I do not miss it.
2: There's a remake or a new version of the tragedy of Macbeth. And it has Frances McDormand in it. And anything she does, I think, is incredible. And I think it's a can't miss one. it's coming out we'll get it at ragtag in mid january and then um i will plug a film for the festival um I guess I can't, I can't say the title of it, but there's a film that's coming that's about a brothers whose father is a, they live in uh, Bosnia and he's a convicted terrorist. And it's about their survival while he's in prison. And um, it's a documentary that I probably wouldn't have picked to watch, but I'm really glad I did. And I hope people get to enjoy it. So, but you'll find out the title of that uh, in, in early February when we release our, our films.
0: Okay, well, we will look out for that one. Barbie, thank you so much. I love yes. talking about films with you and I, and, and I regret all the films that I haven't <laughs> seen that I now have to try and track down and watch on my TV rather than watching them with you. I'd love to every night and again come along to the staff viewing just so that I can sit next to you and listen to you talk all away yes. <laughs> the way.
2: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I guess officially we can give you a press pass and you can come to those, so.
0: <laughs> Not every week, just in every night and again. One where you know that you're going to rant because okay, i just would I like to be there for the ranting <laughs> <laughs> well barbie banks thank you so much and thanks to ted rogers also for putting his oar in and giving us some nominations too Um i look forward to spending more movie time with you in 2022 thanks barbie yes absolutely thank you and that is it for another week. There are just two days of giving left this year and on each of those days on this radio frequency you will hear radio made by your community and about your community. So please go to kopn.org and pledge your support. Thanks to my guest this week and guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at YasminWilliamsMusic.com. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another peek behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri!